welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. The COVID-19 pandemic is the first time that many of us have become aware of the practical dimensions of devolution through the support that has been given by the different nations to those affected by the virus. In her new book, The Impact of COVID-19 on Devolution, Recentralising the British State Beyond Brexit, Janice Morfitt looks at how we see the devolved governments differently because of the pandemic and how central government is using both COVID and Brexit to attempt to recentralise power. Hi, Janet. Oh, hi. Hi. Hello. Thank you for talking to me today. Um, so going with the first question, um, in the book that you say that devolution has never really worked because there's been a failure to consistently include Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland in UK central government decision making in an open way. I think this has also meant that it's been quite a hidden area for most people, mm. the general public. What impact has COVID-19 had on the perception of the devolved nations? Well, I think it's had um, two sorts of perceptions, really. One perception in England and another in the rest uh, of, of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And I think for England, it's the first time that um, people in England have realised that actually um, when ministers speak, they're not speaking for the UK state. And um, even in the media, on, you know, on, on TV and so on, there's always been this um, kind of illusion between England and the UK state since uh, um, uh, 1999. And, and I think what's happened is that seeing that um, the leaders in uh, the first ministers have these powers, they've been able to set um, their own agendas, their timescales, they've been able to, on occasion, close their borders in, in Scotland and Wales. And I think this has come as, as quite a shock to many people in England who didn't realise that there were these differences. Um, and so what we've seen actually, and as an academic in Cardiff, Professor Cushion's actually um, examined this, that the media over the course of 2020 has changed its language from describing what the PM does as UK to England. And so we've kind of seen that English understanding and, and that might lead in the longer term to a consideration of well, should England have a different kind of separate government from the UK? I mean, we aren't at that point yet, but it might come there. For Scotland and Wales particularly, I think what we've, what we've seen is that um, uh, the um, uh, confidence in their first ministers has gone up. They've seen, they've seen to be kind of in charge, and, but on the other hand, not, um, not kind of giving platitudes, kind of saying they don't know, but they think this is the best thing to do. And I think we've seen their stature grow and they've also become uh, very important in England as well. So, so what they say, and certainly at certain times in the pandemic last year, when we weren't having press conferences from number 10, um, there were people from England tuning into Scotland to find out what was going on. So yeah, I they think started we, with the press conferences first, didn't they, in Scotland? Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, we followed them. So I, th I think we've kind of seen um, those, it's really brought out those uh, differences, which is a great irony, because um, at the time of Brexit, um, in Scotland and Wales, then, then um, the administrations are kind of losing power and purchase on, on those things. And, and if we look at the kind of powers they've been implementing around um, public health and the NHS, um, these are really outside 
um, Brexit. So, so in a way, the, the Brexit changes haven't been noticed. They've been working on powers that have been devolved within the UK. But of course, we've got reform of the NHS coming of public health. So who's to say that those powers might not be threatened in the longer term as well? We don't, we don't know. So I think that's, a, that's the question left hanging in a way. So going back a bit to Brexit and then the EU, what role did the EU have in supporting the devolved powers and why does why does the EU promote devolution? Well, um, the EU, right from the outset in um, the Treaty of Rome 1957, um, included um, uh, devolution or subsidiarity, as it's called. It's a sort of a strange word we don't use much in the UK. Mm. But what it actually means is um, that government should be done at the most appropriate level, and that includes raising taxes and making decisions. And um, the UK is identified by the OECD as one of the most centralised states amongst its membership, which includes you know, many, um, many, many countries. Um, but the EU, after 1957, increased its um, increased the role of subsidiarity, what nations, member states had to do to devolve powers in the Maastricht Treaty. And I think from that, we can see um, devolution in Scotland and Wales, the Good Friday Agreement to some extent, and what happened in London, that kind of followed 1992. And then when we got to 2007, 2009, the Lisbon Treaty, that really moved things on in terms of um, a devolution. It got, sort of got to its fullest expression now. So member states are expected to devolve decision-making. So in France, for example, if there's a new piece of legislation or a new policy, it always goes through this um, subsidiarity assessment to see at what level of the state it should be, um, it should be delivered or should be set at. Okay. And we don't have any of that. And right. of course, whilst the devolution was going on in the 19, well, preparation in the 1990s in Scotland and Wales and in London, um, we also had in England, uh, a kind of quasi-devolved uh, situation, which is where we had the government offices for the regions, we had, um, then we had regional development agencies, and these were almost a nod to um, Europe, so look, we are devolving, but of course the power was still very centralised in, um, in, in, in Whitehall, even though they had sort of more localised names, shall we say. Um, and it got to the point in 2014, where for England, the government couldn't really <clears throat> hold out much longer. Um, and so that's when we had George Osborne with his Manchester speech, and we had really had the push to create mayoral combined authorities, which were an attempt, I think, by the government then to demonstrate that they were implementing subsidiarity in England. But we've had lots of counter pressures as well. But but that's that. And why have the EU done it? Well, I think it's partly because um, the, you know the EU, as it's grown, it's become a larger and larger territory. It's wanted to develop kind of cohesion, um, reduce the power of borders, a difference, and so it's very much encouraged networks working together. And also, I think you know when it has to deal, we know in organisations, it's often the grandparent relationship which is easier than the. You know, you get on off, off, you get on better sometimes with not your immediate boss, but the one above. Um, and in a way, for, for, for local and regional authorities, um, having a sympathetic EU has has meant that um, it's it's provided a good relationship and a way to develop and trial policies and so on. 
um, but also it, it helps the EU itself overcome the democratic deficit argument in practice. I mean, um, you, know, you, can, you can run that argument out and see how far it goes. But nevertheless, I think in the EU, you've seen this huge flowering of um, uh, localism, if you like, and, and difference and different places developing different initiatives, which has been very much supported by the centre. So I think it's been part of the EU strategy um, to do that. Um, and it's done it in very practical ways through three treaties, which are all now consolidated in the main EU treaty. So we don't think of Maastricht and Lisbon as being sort of separate treaties, but they all get, every time there's a new one, it gets consolidated and rolled forward. So despite, despite all that journey and all the positives about devolution, you talk about in the book that there appears to be a view at the centre of our government that devolution has gone too far. What's the evidence for this and why do you think that the government now want to re-centralise power? Um, well, I think the, um, the evidence of it really starts, I think, with a, an awakening after this 2009 Lisbon Treaty that something different would have to happen in England. And that uh, what happened in 2014 was that um, every seven years the EU has a programme and you have to show how you're implementing you know, various policies and so on. Um, and the one for 2014 and 2020, which we've just finished, included much greater emphasis on devolving decision-making um, around places and programmes, skills and, and you know, um, investment in transport and all that kind of thing, which, I mean, were wholly EU um, matters. Um, and I think at that point, um, Whitehall appreciated that this really wasn't going to go away. Um, and also we had, um, we also had 10 years ago, the referendum in Wales about the, the Welsh government getting more powers. So we've just had the Welsh Assembly renamed as the Welsh Parliament um, and so on. So we've, we've also seen those um, changes. And up to that point, then, um, and even more recently, um, I think in Whitehall, amongst some, some colleagues, there was a feeling that perhaps the um, devolved administrations were, didn't really have to think about them. And they were, I've heard them described as county councils, which uh, you know, they're creatures yeah. of statute. Um, and uh, in fact, Katie, Professor Katie Hayward from Queen's, who's a great expert on the border in Ireland, um, tells a story about, you know, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales really being only remembered by post-it notes stuck on uh, Whitehall computers, just to remember that you have more than England to think about. Hmm. So I think I think there was a realization that that, that the, the tectonic plates of power in the straits in the state um, they were moving, um, and so the evidence is that, for example, when we had um, the Wales Bill in 2014, um, that um, uh, that the Whitehall tried to take powers back um, and that was um, contested. We can think about, although there's devolution in England, you know, through the mayoral combined authorities, you might argue, the powers of the mayors aren't as strong as the powers of the mayor of London and they have, they're, they're, they're sui generis as, as, as legal structures. They don't have, they're not, a sort of, everyone is different. They were created um, differently. And of course we had local enterprise partnerships and city deals in England where basically um, the centre was uh, Whitehall and the Treasury 
were calling the shots in terms of which projects would be supported and funded. And in fact, since again about 2014-15, we've had the same programmes in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And so, and these bypass devolution. And I never quite understood how the, how, how the First Ministers agreed to these, but um, I, I mean, I, you know, it's hard to find out these things, why, why they happen in, in practice. But what I heard was that, in, that the first deal was offered to one council in Scotland, and it was such a vast amount of money from the Treasury that the, that's the, the administration, the government couldn't, couldn't say they couldn't have it. And that, in a way, once they had it, everybody else wanted it. And so what we have now is a deal for the whole, virtually the whole of Scotland, certainly the whole of Wales and much of Northern Ireland, where funding comes um, directly from London. And it's a bit like the new levelling up fund that the projects there are not devolved all the funding all the projects will be agreed from Whitehall that, 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 that's removed devolution as well and finally just to say that just before Theresa May went as a prime minister the day or two before she gave she launched this thing called the Dunlop review which was around um, a review led by Lord Dunlop to identify ways in which um, Whitehall could become stronger in relation to um, the devolved administrations so oh, okay. um, so and we haven't had that reported yet I mean it's it's rumored that it's been completed but we haven't yet had its findings okay um, you spoke about some of them then um, but do you show in the book that the government's response to the pandemic has been used as a tool for recentralization in some of the ways you um, talked about then um, is there any other ways in which this has happened? Any other examples there? Well, I think um, I think the whole way in which the management of the pandemic was um, organised from the outset. So if you look back um, since probably about the 1860s, public health has always been a local matter. And, you know, it, it was found that if you're going to deal with local disease or um, uh, concerns, that um, viruses that actually... Um, you need to deal with them at a local level. So local government's always been at the forefront of emergency planning, public health, and so on. And so I think it was a great shock to hear uh, about a year ago that allegedly we didn't have the capacity to do track and trace at a local level when every council has officers who are doing track and trace all the time, for example, for sexually transmitted diseases, for food poisoning, for outbreaks of measles, you know, all these sorts of things yeah. that happen. Um, that we don't think about much are contained locally. Um, so I think that was the first thing. The second thing was the um, initial promise to local authorities that they would have every, every resource they needed, but then um, that was cut back pretty quickly and all the responsibilities were given, uh, were privatised. And so I think 2020 was the year of the privatised pandemic. Um, 2021, interestingly, has been the localised approach to pandemic, the pandemic mm. with vaccine rollout. And there's a lesson there potentially for the prime minister in terms of his um, uh, uh, priorities. But then you saw all the kind of local lockdowns, you saw the public rows with mayors, you know, this kind of feeling that the centre was dictating um, what was going, what's happening at a local level. And, and I mean, GPs weren't being given data about um, those who were found to have the disease. Local authorities were having to, were all setting up their own track and trace methods to, um, if like, mirror the private sector because the private sector 
systems didn't seem to be working uh, very well. Um, and, and when it came to volunteers, um, the volunteers were scooped up nationally. There were, uh, on the first trawl, 700,000 volunteers came forward, but most of them weren't used at all. And that, but that created a kind of rain shadow effect so that they, people weren't available to volunteer locally. And I know, I mean, I used to be a chief exec back in the day and of a local authority. And, and I think, you know, what I would be tempted to do is try to set up almost the street volunteer system so that if anybody needed anything, you know, from a computer to medicines, to food, to, you know, some, some method of providing some company or something or other, you know, in a socially distanced way, of course, but just um, the way that you deal with this is house to house. It's, it's really uh, not top down. So, you know, so we, we, we saw, and, and, and the prime minister sort of adopted this, um, uh, presidential style of, you know, wanting to um, uh, represent the whole of the UK. And then gradually, of course, that disintegrated and fractured over the, over the time that the, the pandemic yeah. went forward. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, he did say in a speech to the Conservative Party um, uh, in 2020 that the future of the state was privatised. And that so in a way, we've seen local government be diminished to a kind of sector and not a partner in, de in delivering government policy. And I think that was just reinforcing it. Of course, it's had an effect on local government as well. And I think they realise that many authorities now realise that they've got to sort things out for themselves. And I'm just currently doing a bit of work on how councils are providing housing again. And it's certainly clear that nothing has halted in the last year. In fact, councils are even more um, um, geared up to providing housing and services and generating income so that they can they can be self-reliant and not reliant on government so I think it's had that's had an opposite effect as well really. So in many ways it's been the weaknesses of the central government response to Covid that have encouraged like some exactly. some of the devolved approaches Yes. Um, you say in, you say in the book that there's a, there's been a sense of payback for this in the removal of devolved powers through Brexit. Could you say more about this? Well, I think that if we look at the discussions between the devolved administrations and the centre on Brexit, I mean, if you if we go back to when when the devolved administrations were founded, um, not London, but um, the assembly, the two assemblies then, one parliament, and now two parliaments and one assembly, um, then they're their first functions were to implement EU legislation. And so um, the UK government would negotiate and then it was up to each of the, um, the devolved administrations to implement. And so of course, if you, uh, if you come out of the EU, then the first question is what powers do they have? Well, as I said, they've obviously got devolved health powers. Some of those come from the EU, but most are coming from, from a UK uh, devolution. Um, so I think that, um, and as, so as, as the parallel discussion, you almost see these two things working together. So that as the leaders of uh, the first ministers were becoming more popular, referred to seem to be handling the pandemic in ways which were more consistent with a welfare state kind of philosophy. Um, and as the Brexit negotiations were going through, I mean, all, all the kinds of um, the, well, the, the structures, 
post-devolution were very thin anyway, there were no constitutional changes. But the things like the Sewell Convention, which meant that the UK Parliament couldn't vote on things which affected the devolved administrations. And it, but it was a convention, it was tested in law and it had no power. So it's almost as if um, you, you rather get the sense that at the centre, um, um, that as the, as the kind of recognition power has been growing in the devolved administrations, Brexit's been used to, if you like, dismantle their powers going forward. And we haven't quite noticed that yet because we're not you know, post-pandemic. But if you look at the powers for, say, transport, agriculture, rural affairs and so on, which have been um, devolved and skills, um, we think about um, funding, EU funding, um, either they've been removed in the um, UK Single Market Act or before the Withdrawal Act or the Withdrawal Agreement Act. And these in, in Parliament, when they, these withdrawal of powers, they were discussed. There was a kind of uh, expect ministers gave an expectation that this would be for a fixed period of time that that they were re-centralised, powers were centralised, and that would be for a fixed period of time. But there's no sunset clause in them, so there's no guarantee the powers go back. And the, the big issue, and I found it very difficult to engage a kind of academic debate on this point, but I do think it's critical, is that um, if the EU treaties were, if you like, providing uh, um, a kind of legal platform for devolved administrations, including Parliament. If that's not there, then they become like local, do become like local authorities. They do become creatures of statute because we haven't had any constitutional reform. So that means that um, they could be abolished um, and or their powers can be very much diminished. Um, and this, they, they're, they're, their certainties only last as long as any five-year parliament because our constitution says that no future parliament can be fettered by an existing one. So even though they may get more powers, the future parliament can take them away. Whereas in the EU, it's a much more accumulative approach to powers that you, you know, we have an episodic parliament every five years, you can have a difference. In the EU, it's a bit like, you know, all those EU documents, the whereas, 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 right at the beginning, if you're used to looking at them. And that, that's, that's a representation of a cumulative approach to powers. And so that's gone. And, and they are, I think, at the moment at a very, um, I don't know, I think that their, their position is endangered at the moment because of that. From the, the general public's point of view, it's there's such... Um gradual slow subtle changes aren't they and these are things that are going to massively impact on the way we're governed and the way we get our health care and the way we get our welfare and things like that but it's yeah. so hard I think your book is really helpful in kind of getting into it a little bit for the lay person and explaining it and, and and kind of showing the massive impact it could potentially have and one of the I think the interesting things that you say in the book is this big contradiction in the fact that Brexit was like quite a populist bottom-up movement and it's actually likely to result in less power being owned at a devolved and at a local level. Was there anything more you wanted to say about that? Yes, I do. Well, I think it's a great irony that that seems to have occurred. And mm. although we might argue that that's been accelerated by the pandemic, um, it was certainly in the mix anyway so I think that's so I think all that's happened is that, that perhaps the pandemic has been used to um, accelerate that it's been opportunistically um, an opportunity been taken 
However, I think, as I, as I said before, if you look at the Prime Minister's poll ratings over the last year, I mean, they've been sliding and at, at some points been at very, very low levels in comparison, say, with the leader of the opposition or with, a, with the first ministers. But what's really interesting, since we've had the vaccination um, programme, which has been rolled out um, through much more localist methods, whether that's your pharmacy or, I mean, I got my vaccination in the church hall or whether it's your GP surgery or wherever, then actually the Prime Minister's poll ratings have gone up. So, you know, if we'd, we have to ask if we'd had a privatised approach to vaccination, would that have been like um, test, track and trace? We don't know, do we? And so, we so still... they're getting the reward for something that they didn't want to happen anyway. Yes. It's had to yeah. go to a local level because their plan didn't work. Yes. Now they're right. getting the, um, what's the word? The, the kudos the, for it. The kudos yeah. for it. Yeah. Yeah. So his poll That's rate annoying, is going up. Yeah. So the irony is that having sort of gone for this very centralised approach and mm. privatised approach, um, you know, the, the approach of the, I think I say in the book, you know, the, the approach from the centre of the pandemic is privatised, but also being very politicised. And, you know, we can see that through a lot of the public debate. But ironically, and this is a question of whether the Prime Minister's emotional intelligence will kick in, um, that his poll ratings have gone up when he's localised. So yeah. if you want to, if you want your poll ratings to remain high, then it suggests that you need to rethink your centralisation policies um, if you want to be re-elected, perhaps. So, um, so I think this is this is one of the ironies of the pandemic that's sort of thrown up, really. Yeah, this is why it's so important to like keep. It's very easy to ignore like all the rules and regulations and EU and that kind of thing because it is hard to understand, isn't it? Oh but, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I learned an awful lot reading your book because I find it very easy to ignore that kind of thing. But when you put two and two together, you think, oh, my goodness, that's quite a shocking result, really. And we need to keep an eye on this. Mm. Um, you discuss four post-Brexit scenarios for the future of the UK in the book. Um, they're recentralisation, one that's about maintaining the status quo, one that's about having a more federal state and then um, the UK as an idea or a um, concept like the Benelux countries are. Um, could you briefly outline how these might play out? Well, I think recentralisation would be if um, uh, we carry on on the same path. So, <clears throat> I mean, one the other thing that's happened uh, very recently is that we've removed the fixed term Parliament Act. So the, the Prime Minister yes. can call, a, call an election when he wishes. So um, he might choose to do that, say, in the autumn between, you know, COVID coming down, everybody being vaccinated and before the winter increase, because COVID's a winter um, uh, bug. So, we, you know, do you so think there's, that's there's a possibility? In October. Wow. Do you well, think that might be a possibility? Well, I've got no inside information, but okay. there is a sweet spot there. You can see right. if his poll ratings are up yeah, um, yeah. before we have another, you know, another blast of the, of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but so, and if that happens, then, you know, he may have five years of, of more centralization and recentralization. Right. So, um, you know, you, you kind of think every time, well, how much further can he go? But I, I, as I say, I think that um, uh, we will see much more clearly the effects on Scotland and Wales 
after. And, and as, the, as they have potentially very much more reduced powers and reduced ability to control expenditure, which is already in the mix now, but we can't really see it, um, the stark differences between their position and Northern Ireland, which um, for many purposes remains within EU jurisdictions and so on for, for trade, um, and the opportunity to trade within the EU. Um, the, the, that, I think that fight will get larger and, and become more pronounced. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we will, we will see that. Um, and also we have to remember the Welsh government actually has a case uh, that they've submitted to court around the seal convention and decision making. So that we get to see how that, that plays out. So I think that we also have to remember that, you know, we think about Lord Frost, we think many um, civil servants never really liked being in the EU. They felt, you know, there's a sort of post-colonial kind of view that the, because the UK was a, um, a founder of, of the of post-1945, you know, uh, global structures, WTO, OECD, you know, all of that IMF had a seat on the Security Council and so on that actually um, it should really be very much in a leading role in, in the EU. But of course, the EU works by negotiation and um, people making coalitions of interest and so on. And of course, many of the other member states have a long tradition of coalition. We have no experience of that in the UK mm -hmm. apart from that uh, five-year period. So recentralization could carry on. Um, Status quo, we might just be at the high watermark of devolution at the moment. And we've seen, you know, we, sit, we saw it plummet a bit. Well, two things happened during the Sturgeon and Salmond issues last week. Um, SNP membership went up. <laughs> so lots of people joined the SNP, strangely. But yeah. the polls for, polls for independence came down, having yeah. been um, ahead, I think, in every poll in, in the last year, and the, the, the feeling for independence going up. So we, that, we're not sure about that. But at the weekend, we had a poll for independence in Wales at 40%, which right. is absolutely unheard of. Yeah. And then if we haven't really talked about Northern Ireland, but um, obviously the Good Friday Agreement does contain the opportunity to have um, a poll on, 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 on some kind of reunited island of Ireland. So, um, and there's a, a lot going on at the moment about how such a poll would be conducted. A lot of preparation going, there's a big report from the Constitution Unit at UCL around how that, that might uh, occur. Okay. Um, so we, you know, we might be at the high water mark or we might not. Um, so to counter this, we've had um, arguments coming from Gordon Brown, for example, uh, former prime minister and, and also uh, Carwin Jones, former First Minister of Wales, that there should be a federation or a confederation. Basically, you have um, kind of parity between your parts. So, um, so you probably have a weaker state and um, uh, the, the, the parts of the state have some relationship. It would, it would mean um, it, would, it would mean restructuring Parliament reforming the House of Lords, probably. Um, and there's quite an interesting podcast in, in, uh, from the Institute of Welsh Affairs last September, which actually looks at all the practicalities of how you might restructure parliament and in, in, intra-parliamentary working. Um, 
around, for example, um, having the, the well, having the three parliaments meet, well, to assembly, two parliaments, and the English MPs mm. uh, meeting. Remember, we had English votes for English laws, even and all of that. So um, that would be one method. Um, having um, directly elected membership of an upper house from um, the whole of the UK would be another method. So. And, you know, and, and lots of different points in between. There is a joint ministerial council um, between the devolved nations, but it, it, it didn't really start to meet initially because um, the, it was the UK government and the Scottish and Welsh governments were all Labour, run by a Labour Party. So there wasn't a feeling for a need for something more formal, right. but it never got established. So that could be um, established with much much more formal powers and decision making so there yeah. are lots of options um, that could be looked at and so the fourth option which was kind of remaining in name only was if we did have devolution and so we become i suggest like the benny lux or you know because we think about belgium luxembourg and and the netherlands were part of one country once and they and you know we can think about um, um the the nordic union as well where the mm. responsibilities in Denmark, Norway um, and Sweden particularly um, have been changed over time, although they're separate countries now. So you can see that you might have something where there is an agreement, but it's not necessary. And it's that's and that might be equivalent to the arrangements that the UK has had with the Irish state since 1922 as mm. well. So um, so there are those options. Mm, it will be interesting to see what the future holds. Um, so finally, what do you think we should be learning from what has happened during the pandemic? And what do you think the future holds for the devolved powers of the UK? Well, I think it's shown the power of the local in uh, despite this kind of centralizing, not only narrative, but set of actions. And I think, I think the centre's got to learn to cope with that. I don't think they've really assimilated what that means. I think secondly, it's shown that a privatised state isn't really going to be the answer. And I think you know, what we forget in England is that the welfare state has been much diminished in England, but it's pretty much alive and well in, in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And it's a tangible thing there, as it is across the rest of Europe, actually. So I think what's happened that this privatised state is that our civil service has kind of lost its knowledge and experience of how the state works um, mm. and has to bring in consultants all the time to yes. kind of help it out. So I think um, there are lots of different ways that you can, you can privatise um, public services. And the way we've chosen has always been on the lowest price, but you can do that on quality, on social value. You can you can you can do it in lots of different ways. So, That's true. So maybe it? there'll yeah. be a rethinking and and about how how those things occur. I think it's shown actually that the directly elected mayors in England, so Mayor Burnham, for example, Mayor Rotherham in Liverpool. Obviously, you've got the mayor in uh, in, in in the west of England, uh, in Bristol and, and surrounds. Marvin Rees, yeah, yeah, and and elsewhere. So I think what it's shown is there's um, uh, there's kind of public support when when they fight for their areas, yeah. um, but actually they don't really have many powers. I think they've one of the things that I've been looking at with a view to kind of um, doing a bit of research on um, is actually looking at the way in which the mayors have operated 
and what leadership they've been able to give and, and, and kind of interventions in the pandemic. But actually, there's very little to look at. There's very little to right. see. I mean, they've, they've obviously been doing some things, but it hasn't um, been, obviously, it's nowhere near the kind of leadership shown by the first ministers um, um, because they don't have the levers of control. Um, and even the mayor in London, when he was um, shut down much of TfL at the government's request, then he was later vilified for doing it. He was, wasn't he? Yeah. So you sort of think, well, where's the, where's the logic in that, really? Yeah. Um, so, um, so as I say, um, what we also learned, well, centralising the state doesn't necessarily improve your poll ratings. Um, Unless uh, you have good operations happening on the local level. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think overall, we, we're, at, we're at a quite, a, you know, a pivotal point. Um, about whether we're in a seismic change or whether we're at a high point of feeling about devolution that will die back. So if you take all the powers away <clears throat> from the devolved administrations, then it's going to be quite difficult for them to exercise the same leadership, I think, in, in, a, in a practical way. Yeah. So although it seemed you know, um, a strange thing to do to write this book now when we're in the middle of the pandemic and we're not, you know, we're not concluded, I think I, what I wanted to show that a lot of the wheels are moving and, and, and things are being put into place and changes have been made. And I think, as you said, Jess, that, that actually most people aren't noticing them. And it's a bit like, you know, when the tide goes out, what will we be left with in terms of these changes? And suddenly people say, oh, I didn't know that had happened. Yeah. So I really just wanted to sort of try and put some thoughts together to say, um, this, this is moving, it's changing but it, it certainly will have an effect on all our lives, I think. Um, and it's important just to appreciate, you know, what's motivating these changes and where they might end up. Yeah, I think the book really does that brilliantly and you explain it really clearly. Um, so thank you. And um, oh. thank you for speaking to me today. Thank you, Jess. <laughs> um, so The Impact of COVID-19 on Devolution and other books by Janice Morfitt are available to order on our website which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.